I recorded um, when we first started this. We were really excited to um, record these things, and so we just started like firing them off. Like one day, I think we right. did like three of them. Right. And uh, Chris, you know, tall yeah. PM, he came in here and we recorded an hour and fifteen minutes and got to the end and realized it wasn't working. <laughs> So, so now I always like record a section, yeah, um, and then make sure I can hear it and start back over. So makes good sense. Yeah. So uh, this is a episode of the Burns Built podcast. I got Randy going here with us. Um, I'm Nick. Um, Randy's our fleet manager. You started what about a month ago? Yeah, about a month, about uh, three four weeks ago. I don't know. Time tends to fly. So yeah, uh, yeah, it rolls on pretty good. So actually, yeah. Uh, three to four weeks ago, is that exactly right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Bert, this this podcast was started as um, to be able to have conversations and everyone kind of be able to hear it mm-hmm. and everyone kind of be able to tell their stories, what they do, um, because what we a lot of what we do, you don't see each other a whole lot. True, especially if you work on a crew, you may not see other crews for months and months. Um, there's guys in the field that have one have not seen you, you know, in True. the past few weeks since you started and they may go six months without seeing you especially if they don't have any they don't have any problems right definitely so um so it's become a a conversation it's part of our educational piece so all of our training and everything is the burns built Mm -hmm. um training academy burns built training programs burns built podcast is all part of the the one thing so um so randy um we we kind of found each other on how did you how did you find out about our opening for a fleet manager? So actually, uh, I get the, those notifications I signed up for a long time ago uh, from Indeed. Mm-hmm. That when something pops up that kind of fits the criteria of what your profession is, it pops up and says that. So when I looked at that, <clears throat> it popped up Burns Dirt, uh, fleet manager. And it's like, well, hey, I've done that before. Yeah. And essentially, I was working as a director of parts and service operations for empire truck <clears throat> good company good people uh, running that branch uh, but with this construction equipment iron once it gets in your blood it kind of stays in there yeah yeah and trucks are good don't get me wrong i like trucks but i've been more geared towards since my <clears throat> youth agriculture and also construction yeah uh so when i seen that it kind of piqued an interest and nothing ventured nothing gained yeah which led to our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, which ironically, um, our salesman over at Empire gave me your number and said, hey, Nick's got a couple of trucks down. Would you talk to him and see maybe you could help him out? It's kind of like all the same day, right? Like you saw the posting and heard that we had an opening and then we needed yeah. to talk anyways because yeah, we had so, a couple of trucks down. So that was almost like a, you know, you look up and it's like, Okay, I get I get the message here. This this makes you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff doesn't line up happen this way just out of the blue. There's right. more to it than that. So anyway, after our conversation, then we met, uh, had a good good interview for a couple hours, uh, discussed the position, discussed the company, the opportunity, and uh, got everything worked out. And then here I am now. Yeah. So um, so so early in your career, um, you started out. Was your your first real job? going and working with Thompson or was the heavy equipment that was that your first job in heavy equipment or was it before pretty much I had worked I had worked for farmers I'm from Louisiana originally just south of Alexandria and uh worked for farmers uh 
you know, with tractors and maintenance and herding cattle and all this kind of stuff for, for years. Also worked uh, full-time at Kmart. Okay. So went to school, worked full-time at Kmart. And then at the times I would actually disc at night to about 10 or 11. Mm. And, uh, anyway, I've done, you know, a lot of that. So I was real familiar with the agricultural side of it. And then of course on the agricultural side, these farmers actually have dozers and stuff like this too. Uh, and I was raised around that. I was actually raised around a sugar mill back in Louisiana. My dad was a chief engineer there. Okay. So uh, I operated my first dozer when I was about seven. Uh, I was about five and a half when I was using that Ford 80 in tractor to bush hog. <laughs> so you get raised up with it and it becomes part of you. Yeah. And uh, so in the early 80s, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And it's kind of like, okay, so, you know, your high school guidance counselor comes in and says, well, you could be a wildlife and fisheries guy. You know, it's like, well, I, I like that, you know, but the reality is it doesn't have a, you know, very good income source. Right, yeah. Or a truck driver, which I wasn't crazy about that, uh, or a technician. It's like, well, I like fixing things. I like dissecting things, figuring things out. It's like, well, let me kind of lean toward that way. So ended up working for a couple of tire shops as well. And then uh, made a decision to go to Nashville or Diesel College. So I moved from Louisiana to Nashville. Went up there, went full-time to school, and worked full-time as well because, I mean, you know, you got to eat. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, graduated, and then I went to work for Thompson, cat dealer up in uh, Laverne, Tennessee. Yeah. Which, for, for, so people know – that's the same Thompson machinery that we deal with down here. That's exactly. kind of the northeast end of the territory, and we're on the exactly. south south corner of it. Yeah, yeah Thompson machinery has as uh, from about the Cookville on the west side of Nashville, from Cookville, Tennessee, all the way through Memphis, and then south here in the North Mississippi. Yeah, uh, very good stable company. Uh, and of course, our Caterpillar dealer, which is they must be doing something right, otherwise they wouldn't still be in business. Right, right. But uh, went to work there. Worked a couple years in the shop. Uh, learning the ropes, went through, uh, worked with a bunch of guys, learned things. And after about two years, I had an opportunity to move into field service, into a field service truck. So I moved into that, went to uh, work field service for about three and a half years. I ended up leaving them. I had an opportunity to come up with a construction company uh, that actually was willing to pay more. Right. So I kind of diversified, went to that, and worked for a different couple of construction companies for for the years, uh, ran a shop over at Menifee Crushed Stone, uh, rock, which was rock, rock quarry application. Yeah. After that, uh, went to work for Jones Brothers, which is a large construction company. And yep. then as, you know, while I like repairing things, fixing things, figuring things out, that's, that wasn't going to be my life's calling at the end of it. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of gravitate to utilize my experience levels, but still stay within the professional field I'm in. And achieve higher things. Yeah. So uh, ended up going to Na going back to Nashville Auto Diesel College. Only this time I went as an instructor. So I talked there about seven years. Um, diesel engines, gasoline engines, heavy duty standard transmissions, and also both both phases of hydraulics. So you know I worked on it. I learned about it. Worked on it. And then went back and taught it. Right. So it gives you a better understanding. Yeah. I always say you, you never really have a fully understanding of something until you can teach it. Once you can teach it, then you, you really get it. And it helps you yep. in a way to understand it when you start teaching. Yes. Uh, there, I mean, there was times that uh, as I was teaching, 
and I'm going through the course material and I'm talking to the students. It's like, Hey, wait a minute. So now that's why I did that. That's now why that worked that way. Yeah. Okay. So this makes sense now, you know, so the dots tend to line up and connect over a period of time. Yeah. But, uh, so you started teaching. Yeah. I did it for seven years. Uh, the school sold a great job. Loved it. Uh, it went from a family owned business into a corporation. Things changed. Um, a lot of things changed. So, uh, it was best for me to move on at that point. So, I took a job as a used equipment manager and basically started a department from scratch. And this is at Jeffers Corporation out of Nashville, Bobcat and Clark, Daewoo, Lindy Baker, Forklift Dealership. Um, took that over, started from scratch. We made about a 38, 40% gross profit margin on our sales, which was really good. I had yeah. two guys that worked in the shop that were young guys that I paid the shop for, but they basically worked for me. And I basically trained them as we went through the process of, you know, using my teaching abilities at a lower cost for labor to get them to work on this used equipment, which we're, then we sold and all the departments made money off of it. Yeah. Cause I guess part of that was you would bring in these, this used iron mm-hmm. and then you would have to either replace things, make upgrades, clean it up, re- swap out parts that would increase the value of it. So then you could turn around and flip it yep. at a profit. Yeah. In a lot of cases we would, uh, you know, a customer would have a forklift that had a transmission out of it. And we would give them X amount of dollars for it. Go pick it up. And it may sit there for three or four months. And then there'll be another customer have one with an engine out of it. Yeah. Welcome to find out. They're basically saying model the parts interchange. And bam, we pull the engine out of one, put it in the other one, and do some more work to it. And all of a sudden, then we got a good running piece and make some money off of it. And we got spare parts for the other. Yeah. So it worked out really good. Uh, you did that for about a year. And then... Uh, they came to me and said, hey, look, we got a service department that's operating in the red, and we think maybe you can help us. Yeah, that feels good when you're when you're making an impact in one side, and they go, hey, we've got a problem over here. Do you think you can go fix this? So yeah. that was one of those deals that uh, it's kind of like, okay, and I've never been scared of challenges. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the sense of accomplishment means something. So after a discussion, uh, myself and the service manager swapped positions, and I took over the service department. Uh, basically had, uh, 23 service techs, two warranty girls, two administrators, a shop foreman, a bobcat, a shop foreman also on forklift. I had, uh, a dispatcher as well. And basically it, it was a total of almost 40 people under me, which was a pretty sizable, uh, operation oh yeah i mean our our my my department over there was bigger than some of the other branches within the company right entire branches took that um i really liked it did a really good job over there uh, they were very appreciative it worked for good people uh we had a, a slowdown early 2000s and once uh things slowed down a little bit our operations manager decided to leave so essentially what they did is they gave me his job on top of my job. Mm. Well, I had a full-time job as it was, you know, it was, right. it was 13 a day, you know, including the commute. And it got to the point to where I couldn't deal with all of it, you know, and I went to him and was like, Hey, we got to do something here, you know? And so, uh, they offered me the operations manager position, which wasn't a bad thing, but they didn't want to give me any help. And yeah. I was, I was already doing the job anyways. So well, we decided that uh, we were going to do something different. And basically, I decided that. 
Yeah. So, uh, from that point, uh, I actually went into service management, power equipment company, which is a Komatsu dealer. I've got basically about 16 years of service management experience, uh, which basically tells you I'm probably not normal because mm-hmm. the average life expectancy, now it's not 16 consecutive years, yeah, but 16 years total. Uh, the average life expectancy of a service manager is usually two to three years before they yeah. get burned out. Yeah. Uh, parts managers usually go to 11, 12, or 13 because it's a less stressful job. Uh, in service management, you're dealing with problems, reoccurring problems. That's it. Yeah. Nobody ever calls, hey, man, how you doing? You know, you having a good day today? You know? No one calls and says, hey, this thing's working, thanks. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. like, all right, you know, or... Hey man, uh, you know, can I, what, you know, yeah. uh, how's your day going? Can, you know, what's your plans for the weekend? Yeah. So you deal with problems all the time. Yeah. I understand. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of one of my strengths anyways, is problem solving yeah. out, out of the box thinking. But anyway, through the years, I've been, uh, in service management, operations management. Um, I, I stayed in Nashville, Tennessee until, uh, January of 2020 and moved down here to Columbus area, Lyle Machinery. I was looking for a branch manager at the time. I was working as a, as a fleet man, manager for Josh Lefevre Construction based out of Jackson, Tennessee, but they had a location outside Nashville. The uh, headhunter got a hold of my resume and contacted me. And it's like, hey, you know, uh, I got a good job opportunity. You know, it's in Mississippi. And I said, okay, I'm listening. What's well, a branch manager for a Komatsu dealer? Okay, I'm listening. It's in Columbus, Mississippi. And it's like, okay. Where? Where the hell is Columbus, Mississippi? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I said, Columbus, Ohio? Yeah. Not ain't going to happen. Columbus, Georgia? I've heard of that. Columbus, yeah. Mississippi? And he's, um, oh, it's not too far from Tuscaloosa, not too far from Starkville, not too far from Tupelo. So, okay. So, geographically, it kind of made more sense. And, um, you know, it's through some thought processes. I've got family back in Louisiana. It's elderly. Uh, they're in their mid-80s, mother and stepfather. And my brother's in his late 60s. Uh, so their health's not the best as it is. Right. I've got a niece, uh, granddaughter and, and stepson up in Nashville. And essentially I'm about halfway between, uh, Columbus is about halfway to Nashville and about halfway back to Alexandria, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So now I can actually leave, you know, and get there on a the weekend and spend a little time and come back. Whereas before, if I was in Nashville going to Louisiana, you're driving 10 and a half hours each way. Mm, yeah. So, uh, plus it's further South. And Nashville winters are probably more brutal than what people realize because you tend to end up with a lot of ice and people can't drive. So I was ready for a change anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nashville's just kind of just growing and growing and growing. And every time I go up there, I'm like, this place has changed in the past two months. You know? Yeah. There used to have vast amounts of farmland. Now it's vast amounts of subdivisions. Yeah. Right. You know, at one point in time, uh, Nashville, over a three-year period from 2015 to 2018, I think they said the average rate of people moving to Nashville was like 95, 96 per day. Wow. Yeah. So if you run the math, it doesn't take long. And if you ever drive up there, you you can pretty well back up those statistics based upon the amount of drive time going from one side of town to the other. Yeah. It is not a pleasant experience. Yeah, you're that means you're building ten or fifteen thousand houses a year. Yeah. And school systems. And school systems and stores and yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, wow. You know, it's uh and they're still recording a phenomenal rate of growth. Uh with the expectancy not to decline probably to twenty twenty seven. 
uh, even at that point, they're, they're talking about being flat. Yeah. So it's a... Uh, Some, somebody from Thompson Machinery recently told me that the Nashville market is the largest metro for skid, minis and skid steers and small iron because of that house, for the, because of housing construction, because going in there and building a pad for the house mm-hmm. and house construction, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that that market is the largest in the country for minis and skid steers. I'm not surprised because uh, what they were basically doing in Nashville is they were buying houses, uh, you know, some of the best, you know, communities at the time. Yeah. They're buying these houses, they're knocking them down, and on the same lot they're putting up two houses side by side, two-story, and you've got about maybe six to eight feet between the two houses, but they're going up with it. So yeah. now they're building, you know, twice the amount of housing space on the same lot size, and they're selling I mean, yeah, in Nashville, the market is unreal. Yeah. And, you know, Tennessee has done a really good job. Uh, basically, the leadership in Tennessee has done a really good job about growing, uh, actually, not only the city, but the state as well. Uh, of course, you got the Titans in there. They're bringing NASCAR back this year to Nashville. They had a Grand Prix race there last year. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. actually blocked the city off, which... I almost wanted to kind of see that, that, you know, and I guess to an extent, as long as I lived there, I kind of seen it anyway with some of the people driving. It's just like a Grand Prix anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing some of the stuff you see. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, so so you came so you came to Columbus, worked for Lyle. Yeah, worked for Lyle, uh, ran that branch uh, for about a year and a little over, about a year and four months or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a good fit, Uh you know, that was in my background and a lot of what I was told up front uh, based upon the area and the potential business level uh, just basically wasn't here. Yeah, there's not a lot of Komatsu buyers around here. Where... No, it, it's not. It's a very limited, <clears throat> very limited as far as the amount of people who have those machines. So the opportunity to grow your business is just simply not there. Yeah. You've you got to have the population base. you got to have the customer base. And then you got to have the growth rate in order for all that to come together. But the, the opportunity to Empire came up, and uh, it was just another one of those deals. And essentially, uh, I moved over and took that opportunity. Good company, good people. Um, got had a good crew over there. Still got a good crew over there. I stopped by this morning, picked up parts. Uh, you know, cut up with the guys. Uh, good people, good product line, good manufacturer. Uh, the, the the reality was this is a better fit for me. Yeah. And a lot of that's what, you know, life is about. It's just not necessarily a job, what you're doing. is where you fit in, where you plug in, and how you can contribute uh, to the success of a company. Right. Because in reality, uh, my personal success is uh, tied to the success of this company. That's right. You know, yeah. we're tied together. So yeah. technically speaking, it's Every bit my company is, is anyone else's company. That's right. We're a, we're a team. We represent each other. We work for the same. I talk about that a lot, that um, the reason we come to work is to provide for our families. Mm-hmm. That the, and so, in a way, you now begin to, it takes that, that a company is family thing one step further, that if we're all working together to provide for our families, then we're all kind of extended family exactly. in a way that we're working to provide I'm working to provide for your family just as much as you're working to provide for mine. And we're working to provide for, you know, 
every, everyone else's, and we're working together True. to do the same goal. That's exactly right. Um, and that's, you know, the reality is um, when you become a part of something, your strengths, you know, of a group far outweigh any individual weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, so in the team, I'm, I'm a big believer in a teamwork concept. Uh, you can get so much more done and accomplished. It's a sense of unity. It's a sense of uh, getting things done. It allows people to function uh, in a group setting with uh, contributing. You know, and everybody everybody's important, every, every little job they do. I mean, yeah. everybody's important, and sometimes people don't realize that. But uh, everybody ranks an importance level within the success of a company. Yeah. And, and one thing we've, we've talked about tying that together is that um, we, as a team, it's important that we all bring different experiences to the mm-hmm. table, and that's how we contribute from different perspectives. And we try to round out that skill set, um, which when you came in, that was one of the big benefits of you joining this team was you have a, you have a different skill set and experiences that no one else here has. And working in different parts of dealerships, working at other companies and services and working and instructing that really helped to make this a good fit um, because of your skill set, you know? Right. It gives me an opportunity based upon my diversity and my experience levels to be able to plug in, uh, provide some other ways of looking at things, uh, other opportunities and ideas that I've been exposed to in the past with other companies uh, and basically contribute to the success of our company. Yeah. So what um you 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 were a, you were a good podcast guest and brought brought some notes. Um, oh, yeah. I feel like every time someone brings notes, I never um, let them talk about what's <laughs> on their notes. But um, you know, you've got you've been here a few weeks and mm-hmm. you've kind of started settling down. I know you're starting to really wrap your arms around the fleet and the problems and the opportunities that we have here. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing at this point on ways we can improve or? Um, the starting those changes and improvements to start making. What are you, what are you thinking? Well, so we've recently uh, made an agreement with Caterpillar to do the majority of our service work as far as mm-hmm. our preventative maintenance. Right. This does a couple of different things that benefits us greatly. Number one, it frees our guys up. So we're not concentrating on changing oils and filters. Um, it allows our guys to concentrate on, on keeping the equipment up and running because at the end of the day, if it's not running, it's costing us money. Right. So it allows them to focus more of their expertise on actual repairs. Uh, the other thing it does is it gives us some leverage with Caterpillar. If they're doing all of our services, they're using OEM supplied parts, oils, technicians, factory trained. And, you know, the reality is we should get 10,000 hours out of a machine relatively easy. Right. So if this machine has 5,000 hours and all of a sudden we lose an engine out of it, it gives us an opportunity to go to Caterpillar. It's like, hey, look, we paid X amount of dollars for this machine. We only got half of a return on investment here. We need some help to put this back into operating condition because we didn't buy it to fail. We bought it to run. That's right. Because if this, if this machinery is running, that's how we earn our living. Yeah. That's how we accomplish our goals and our tasks. So that has, that's going to benefit us greatly. Um, it gives us records, plus it gives us another set of eyes uh, on this machine, uh, as well as my own and our maintenance people and our operators and everyone else. 
sometimes the more people you have looking at something, uh, the more opportunity there is to find something before it becomes a problem. Right. Well, that's one of my favorite things about the CBA agreement is that when they come and they do one of those services, they go through and build this inspection report, mm-hmm. which kind of it helps us to build that history of the machine and we can identify issues earlier. Exactly. You know, they, they tell you how much wear you got left on, you know, how much life you got left on the undercarriage mm-hmm. and you can start planning for that. Exactly. And, you know, oil sampling, uh, oil sampling is kind of like uh, going to the doctor and getting your, uh, your blood drawn and checked. Right. You know, see if you got, if you're diabetic or, you know, if you got whatever it may be. Oil sample is basically the same thing. Uh, where they pull the oil samples, they send it into a lab. They basically scan it and look for metal, iron, copper, aluminum, uh, wear materials. Yeah. So if you start having a higher concentration level of these as you go along, that means you've got a problem developing. And it's kind of like, um, goes kind of, it's got like machine health. It goes yeah. back to your own individual health, you know, by getting screened for high blood pressure, getting screened for, uh, hypertension, cancer, things like this, you know, you're kind of preparing and you, cause that knowledge ahead of time allows you to take the bull by the horns ahead of time. Yeah. If you wait till something completely blows up and you have a big giant heart attack, well, that's not good for you. Same thing. We all of a sudden lose an engine without knowing we got a problem. It becomes a lot more expensive to repair. Yeah. But if we're seeing these oil sample reports and we start noticing this, then we can kind of take corrective action before it becomes a, a big issue and a big problem. Yeah. It's kind of, I, I went to the doctor several years ago and uh, he said, your blood pressure is getting up here. And I said, I said, okay. He said, well, you're going to have to, um, <clears throat> you're going to have to either, he said, you got a couple options. I said, okay. He said, uh, I can put you on blood pressure medicine. I said, nope. He said, well, you can get a new job. I said, ah, that's not an option. <laughs> he said, or you could lose some weight. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll cut back on my eating and start running more, you know, yeah. but it's, it's the same thing though. I mean, mm-hmm. as soon as what you're talking about, I was thinking about that of, you know, you, you get to sit down and look at the machine and say, Hey, we've got, something's going on here. Are we abusing the machine? Are, are, is a part failing um, and start trying to figure out what are the options. And sometimes it is to lose weight, you know? Yeah. Um, but you start really figuring out what that, that correct cure is. And these, uh, this, this service agreement is really taking that planning and um, knowledge of the machine and the machine's health really to a new level for us. So, yeah, that's going to, it's going to, it's a great thing because like I said, you've got factory trained guys. That's all they do. Yeah. You know, it's like going to a heart specialist uh, you know, that's all they basically do. So they're very good at what they do. Um, and this kind of correlates well within that because these guys are trained by a cat. They know what to look for. Uh, they know what to test. They're scanning the oil samples. And if we start getting one back to Scott, say we got an engine that's getting some copper or aluminum in it. And you start seeing this and it becomes, you know, more and more prevalent Then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, we need to stop this machine now. Yeah. And probably put put a set of bearings in it, rod and main bearings in it before we have a it comes loose and we get a rod hanging outside the block, and we go from something that's like a five to six thousand dollar repair to a thirty five or forty thousand dollar repair. Right. So which costs us all money at the end of the day. We always talk it. about that 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 engine repair just took money out of everybody's pockets because everybody everybody yeah. everybody because it's it because that eats into your profits. Yeah. You know we're also in the process of so the equipment these days just like your automobiles uh i'll have what's called telematics on it yep so telematics is has a lot to do with gps 
but the equipment actually has so many computer systems involved in it that they all communicate to each other and tell each other shift points and RPMs and fuel consumption and, you know, hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm revving too high in this gear, shift to another gear or uh, other various things like this. And these ECMs, uh, electronic control modules, all talk to each other. And essentially they're running, you know, it's kind of like your nervous system in your body, so to speak. Yeah. They're all telling each other what's going on, telling the brain what's going on. Well, they'll throw up codes if something's going wrong with the system. If, if all of a sudden uh, your fuel flow is getting restricted, for example, it may throw a code up on there and say, hey, you know, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm not getting as much fuel right now, so I can't build as much power, so I'm having to cut back. So essentially what that does, it alerts the ECM, it goes through the telematics, and it may throw a code. Mm-hmm. So these manufacturers have the ability um, through cell towers and what have you to actually see these codes when they come up. And it'll tell you, you know, rail pressure high. So essentially what that basically means, if we get a rail pressure high code, that basically means that, hey, our fuel filters probably need to be changed. Right. We probably That would be the first thing to do. And then whenever you change your fuel filter and the fuel rate goes back to normal, it drops that code off and it's no longer active and you're good to go. So the equipment can tell us to an extent what area is wrong with it or what it's doing. Now, of course, this is getting pretty complicated anymore because of the amount of wires and wiring that we got to have in sensors that we got to have on this equipment to make it happen. The telematics also, and we're looking at currently a couple of different companies that will actually integrate in with the original telematics of Caterpillar, which is VisionLink. Yep they will actually be able to measure uh, and, and give you a, a geofence about where this thing is located at, when it started, how long it ran, how long it idled, how long it produced, how much fuel was consumed. Um, there's a lot of factors and there's a lot of things that will come into play and actually will be able to tell people. Uh, idling, for example. Uh, especially you got diesel fuel over five bucks a gallon right now. Right. Which is unreal. But if a machine sits there and runs for an hour, and let's just say it burns two gallons of fuel, there's 10 bucks gone Yeah. with no production. The bad thing about that is you've also mentioned the value off the machine. Exactly. You're also increasing the hours on the machine without actually getting productivity out of it. Yeah. So from a resale standpoint, you're losing value. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, the more miles you put on a vehicle, the less value it really it has during resale so idling is a concern uh you know granted there are times it's necessary if you got a truck sitting there waiting on a uh, excavator there's no sense shutting it off for 30 seconds and cranking it back up right but if you're sitting there for five to ten minutes uh you're probably better off to shut it off yeah uh these telematics will help us to monitor uh, patterns. It'll help us to monitor fuel consumption rate. It'll help us to monitor the amount of production per piece because at the end of the day, we're wanting to get the best return on investment out of what we spend. So we buy a particular piece of equipment. We're wanting to accomplish as much as we can with that particular piece of equipment for the lowest unit cost and the lowest operating cost. Yeah. So what we're looking to do is measure our productivity to see, you know, and by the same token, things wear. You got wear items, you know, you got uh, end bits, uh, cutting edges, bolts, tracks, fluids, filters. These are all wear items. 
they have to be replaced periodically. That's a cost. So we're, we're, what we're in the process of doing is trying to get a, a system pull, pulled together that will operate within the telematics system of the equipment where we can also track our maintenance costs. Mm-hmm. We can track our repair costs. We can track our fuel costs. And by running those numbers, then we can find out, it's like, hey, I'm billing X amount of dollars for this machine per hour, and I'm only spending X amount of dollars. So technically, I'm making a profit off of this. Or it may be in reverse. It's like, hey, I'm billing out this much, and I'm spending, like, way more than that. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to do something here. Yeah. I had a contractor several years ago tell me that the most important tool and being in the construction business is knowing your cost, that that is the single most important piece of knowledge is the most important tool is, um, really knowing. So if an example, when you're talking about a dozer and knowing really what that cost is per hour, that allows us to go out and get work at either a higher profit margin or if times get hard, cause times do get hard every once mm-hmm. in a while. Um, how cheap do I have to bid this job so that we still, Sure. You know, so we can still work, so we still can have a paycheck and go home. Um, that knowledge becomes power mm-hmm. across the whole business. Just knowing that telematics pr- provides us with power across the board. Yes. I mean, it gives us yeah. a snapshot of, you know, what we're doing. You know, there's a couple other things with this, too. Measuring production um, on a job site, you know, by utilizing this data and sifting through it, Let's say we're moving dirt. And let's just say, for instance, you know, you got two different options to move dirt here. You can either use a pan, an ag tractor with a pan or a scraper, you know, a cat scraper. Or you can use an excavator uh, sitting at an elevated level and loading trucks. Well, now you'll be able to measure how much material you move each day. Right. Okay. So, and then you'll be able to take in consideration the other factors involved as well. Um, so if you got uh, a scraper pan moving dirt and it's costing you 30 cents a yard and then, and then you're moving a hundred loads a day, if you can sit an excavator on there and use two, three haul trucks and for the same period of time, you can haul more per day and it's only costing you 15 cents a yard, say for example, yeah, just ra- random numbers here. <clears throat> All of a sudden now you're looking at, Hey, not only can I move this material cheaper with an excavator and some haul trucks, but I can get this job done quicker. And it's kind of like uh, when you bid a job, you know, you're saying you're going to accomplish this goal for X amount of dollars. Right. And, you know, you tentatively plan your schedule out and you think, okay, it's going to take me two months to do this job. You know, and you allocate your resources and everything to that. But if you can get in there and do it more efficiently and get out in a month, You've lowered your costs associated with that. Then what you've actually done also as well is you freed your crews up to go to another job for the other month that you thought you were going to be tied up there, which brings you in more volume of work. Yep. So it increases your profitability. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about um, data-driven decisions. Mm-hmm. That um, It's great that there's a lot of people here that have a, years and years of experience and you know their gut feeling is that, hey, it's going to be better to use that tool for this job, mm-hmm. but these telematics really um, allow us to either confirm that or say, Hey, we've been making, we've been using the wrong machine for this task. We've been laying pipe with the wrong machine because we're using a three thirty six to lay 12 inch pipe. Um, and you know, that's way too big of a machine. It's costing us this. Whereas if we'd use a three twenty, yes. it would cost this. 
Um, and that really allows us to make decisions based on numbers. Exactly. And that's, that's where it's, that's what it's all about. You know, at the end of the day, uh, it's kind of like your chicken account. Um, the more money you keep in your chicken account, the better you are. That's right. Yeah. Because you want more input than you have output. Yeah. So if you can be more productive, essentially you're going to spend less and you're going to become more efficient and your utilization rate becomes higher as well because at the end of the day, this equipment, these trucks, this equipment, everything that we utilize as tools, chainsaws, whatever else, there's an initial cost involved with that. We're buying it to produce, to be, uh, to contribute to the success of whatever task at hand we're trying to do. But there's a cost associated with it. There's a maintenance cost on it. Yeah. So if you can buy a piece of equipment and get it to pay for itself and still have it and still make money off of it and you're consistently making money off of it, that's the goal. The goal right. is to, you know, and there's maintenance costs or, yeah, I mean, that's, it, that's just what you have to have in order for it to last throughout its life cycle. Yeah. Uh, there's other things where, you know, when you get into damages and things like this, that's unintended uh, expenditures that we need to limit as much as we can, kind of like idling. Yeah. Uh, the goal is to, identify what's most productive, identify what works the best, most cost efficient, and utilize those procedures or that equipment to accomplish what it is we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And that's what we're really looking to do. That that right there puts more more money at the bottom line, which is what we're all about. Yeah. And that's what we're going to try to do. And these telemacs are going to help us quite a bit. It'll give us a chance to uh, identify utilization of a machine and also depending upon the utilization of the machine also it allows us to identify how much we need to spend on it or do we need to buy another one of these or what's you know are we going only to use this 100 hours a year yeah uh is it really worth dumping this amount of money into something like that we'd be better off renting we'd be better off choosing a different alternative a different option so those are a lot of decisions that can be you know, driven off of utilization, production, and it may be one of those things where we get we got one machinery, one dozer or whatever, and we're spending this on it, and then we're spending that on it, we're spending this on it. And you got to sit back and say, "Wait a minute, <clears throat> something here just ain't jiving, right? We got to we got to yep. do something different. We're going to use a different machine, or maybe we need to sell this one and get another one." Yeah, we we too in in long term when we're working on the field side where. Once you have generated this data and have this knowledge and have this understanding of what mm-hmm. what cost and the productivity is, then putting that information back into the field mm-hmm. um, so that we've got heavy job that we're going to software that superintendents and the guys in, on crews will be able to use about midsummer, supposed to start in uh, July as our implementation debt or goal. Right. Um, is that at the end of the day, using the data that you're talking about telematics generating, um, they can get to the end of the day say, I use this machine this long. We worked this many hours and we put this much pipe or we moved this much dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, here's how much money we made or lost today. Hey, exactly. do we have to hump it tomorrow? Or, hey, do we need to make an adjustment because we're using the wrong tool? Do we need to downsize? Or, hey, do we need to upsize the machine so we can get up to our production goal tomorrow? Or, hey, are we on the, we're on the money, you yes. know? And sometimes, hopefully sometimes that's the, that's the thing, right? As you get to the end of the day and you go, we're killing it. We're it, doing it. It really from an efficiency standpoint is really going to contribute significantly because, you know, in most cases, uh, you've got your, 
job. You get it laid out. Got all your specs. You, you got your materials you got to buy and bring in. You got kind of got your, your schedule, you know, that's put in place. You know what machines you kind of want to use. Uh, but in a lot of cases, there's really no way to measure that to see exactly how efficient you are other than humans providing their own schedule based upon what they think or what right. their past experiences are. This way you're assigning numbers to it. So it becomes factual. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in other words, I got a deadline on this job. Uh, I've got to move a hundred loads of dirt a day in order to make this two week deal. And then all of a sudden, just like what you were alluding to, it's like, Hey, I'm only running 80 loads a day here. Okay. So why am I only running 80 a day? I should be getting a hundred. Is my machine taking too long to load the trucks? Do I have enough trucks? Is my operator on my machine sitting there for five minutes waiting on trucks to come back? Is my haul, haul road too long? Do I add trucks, subtract trucks? So it allows you to kind of efficient, efficiently plan based upon that data. And then you can get back up to your 100 loads a day or 110 a day or whatever it may be. And then you, you become actually ahead of schedule. Yeah. Which once you do that, then you wrap the job up sooner because you're get paid the same thing, whether, you know, if, if, you, if it's a two-month job and you do it in a month, or if it's a two-month job, you do it in two months. The yeah. difference is how much you spend doing it. That's right. And that's where that profit and those profit checks come from is exactly. getting this job done faster and more efficiently, and we all get to take more money home at the end of the year. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, is there anything on that on those notes over there that I didn't that we didn't, big ideas we didn't hit? Oh, uh, well, uh I've got quite a few notes, but that's okay. we, <laughs> we can do this again anyways. Um, yeah, and we'll have more of this, you know, and oh, that's, yeah. that's part of, um, part of this deal is that technology changes. Mm-hmm. Um, our thought process changes. We may get in here and find some data and, and a few months from now, come back and say, Hey, look guys, we found this data. We, we, everybody needs to know this. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, we'll have training classes where we really break down these numbers and talk about, yeah. um, cause one thing we've been looking at, we've been talking about is we, we talk about idle time, for example, mm-hmm. there is a healthy amount of idle time. Like there's an allowable, like you said, if you're loading a truck for 90 seconds and then you're waiting on 30 seconds for another truck to come, you know, that may be what it is on the project. You may right. need that, you know, that may just be how the trucks are rolling through the job. And so there's an educational piece of everyone understanding what's, what's healthy, what's not, what's underperforming, what's overperforming, you know, what, Exactly. what puts us ahead. So it'll be an ongoing conversation. Um, but, um, so we'll, we'll keep doing it. So, well, all this is, all this information is going to allow us to better ourselves, our procedures. It's going to allow us uh, to gain more knowledge, to get, become more efficient. And that's what, that's what the goal is in the, the day. Yeah. Become more efficient. Uh, if you go, I mean, you got to spend money to make money, but you want to spend it wisely and you want to get the highest return on investment that you can. And that's the key with all of it. Absolutely. Uh, making those rational decisions based upon good data collection, good numbers. And then there's also the human factor in this too. Not everything's totally data driven. Uh, it's got to be the human factor for us, you know, you know, our, our assets and our people are our two biggest things that we utilize to accomplish our goals. Yep. And you got to have both. Uh, you got to have people, invest in people, train, train those people and, you know, strive to make them the best they can possibly be. And then you got to provide quality equipment as well to accomplish the goals. Right. And these days, a lot of people, a lot of manufacturers make good quality equipment. Um, they all have their weaknesses. They all have their strengths. 
and utilizing those strengths and weaknesses in our position on particular on particular jobs and the longevity costs and things like this is something else we can kind of start to measure as well. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, these companies wouldn't be in business if it wouldn't be good. Yeah. Right. Right. However, the level of support also means a lot. So the service after the sale and therein lies, you know, a big factor when it comes time to evaluate what piece of equipment we need from what manufacturer. And, uh, there's a lot of factors involved, not just sale price. Absolutely. Because I'd rather pay a little extra for something else that's going to make us more money because we can get more loads done in an hour than paying a less price for one that can't get as many loads done in an hour. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, we do at the end of this podcast, we always do a segment um, called the What You're Digging On or What's, what's Yeah, What You're Digging On mm-hmm. um, and ask folks to. Uh, Talk about two good things. Some, you know, celebrate something that's happened at work, um, whether it's mm-hmm. you know an event or a piece of knowledge or a conversation you had, um, and then talk about something outside of work that's yeah. you know either coming up or in the past, or you know, tell me something good that's been recent. So one thing about, uh, of course, I've only been here just a little less than a month. Uh, I'm very comfortable within the company. Met a lot of good people. Still got a lot more people to meet, which is going to be good people too. Yeah. And uh, this has been an overall positive experience. And the amount of potential that I recognize out of this company and where it can go is astronomical. You know, and it's, it's very pleasing to be with a company. When you come in, you start looking around, and you see the motivation, the drive, the desire, the teamwork, uh, the embrace, being embracing knowledge, uh, appreciation. Uh, so... For a, a work standpoint, I would say that just basically being where I'm at, being with this particular company and the teamwork that we're all pulling together yeah. and working toward a common goal, that's not something that you find everywhere all the time. Right. Yeah, it, that's cool. It is uh, something, you know, totally, it, it's very refreshing. And, you know, from someone who, uh, you know, particularly likes what they do, it's, it's refreshing that you come into this is like, Hey, all right, everybody likes doing this. And this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. So yeah. that's a very positive and upbeat on the personal side. Um, I do tend to work a lot, but, uh, I am planning on here and I'm not sure I gotta get my dates together, but I may be at the beach for about a week. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, yeah. That's that, uh, you know, downtime, uh, type deal. We get, everybody's got to recharge your batteries. Yeah. And that's the key and uh, recognizing that. So, yeah. Do you have a particular beach you'd like to go to or a particular spot that you hit or you just kind of bounce around? Well, I used to go to Panama city all the time. Yeah. And, uh, then Destin, uh, the white sands, as long as it got white sand. Yeah. Uh, Mexico beach is nice as well. Orange beach is nice. So I, I tend to look for those white sands and, uh, you know, get up and walk up and down the beach and, it's nice and warm layout and yeah. having an adult beverage or two and yeah. read a book and relax, go out and get some good good food, like an Angelo Steakhouse in Panama City. Yeah. Awesome steaks. Awesome steaks. Me and Garrett, uh, we, uh, the, our par- parish family, our mother and our sister, we always try to go on a family vacation every mm-hmm. summer, and we were trying to plan ours out for the summer last night, and I sent a, a spot in Gulfport. And Garrett's like, that's not the beach. <laughs> I just say, well, 
what do you mean? He said, that's like the river. We need to go to Pensacola. I was like, yeah. okay, you're right. All right. If that's, that's what you're, that's part of your criteria. Let's go. Okay. Yeah. It's gotta, so. it's gotta be that white sand. Yeah. Oh, that, that white sand is something else. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I get it. I go to eat seafood, so I don't really care a whole lot about the sand and the water. I, I just go to like read a book and eat some good food for a few days. And that's, that's yeah. how I recharge. So. That's, that's kind of, essentially that's what I do too. I'll, uh, basically get out and lay out at the beach and, grab a book and read it and get lost in it and then uh, yeah. just relax and there's no predetermined schedule it's just by if you wake up you feel like you know what i'm going over here to do this today you just go yeah. do it you don't no agenda exactly it's yeah. just it's just wide open and you just kind of do everything by feel yeah so yeah cool well uh randy i appreciate you being on here i'm i'm stoked about uh what you're doing and uh, what you got planned and and I think you're doing really really cool things that are going to really impact um, everyone right. uh, not just the machines I think people are going to see an impact in their lives with the things that you the knowledge that you have the imp, the the tools that you're implementing I think all of it's going to be a massive impact so I'm excited to see what oh, yeah. you do and how it works out so moving forward and growing that's right that's right well this has uh, been another episode of the burns built podcast uh we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>